Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey, and welcome to Wild Lives by Phonographic. I'm Rochelle. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're speaking to the super inspiring Dr. Laurie Marker, who has spent pretty much her whole adult life working with cheaters. Now, if you've ever had the privilege of seeing a cheater, especially in the wild, you can probably understand why Dr. Laurie has shared her life with these incredible big cats. Cheetahs are famous not only for their grace, but also for being the world's fastest land animal. They can clock speeds of up to 120 k's per hour. But life in the wild can be tough for these vulnerable cats. They have to compete for food and territory with more dominant and aggro species, including not only lions and other big predators like hyenas, but also human beings. Originally from Detroit in the US, Dr. Laurie has worked with cheetahs since 1974, and she spent the early years of her career researching whether it's possible to release captive-bred cheetahs back into the wild. In 1990, she set up her permanent research base, the Cheetah Conservation Fund, or CCF, at Ochoarongo in Namibia, where she researched wild cheetahs and also rescued those that had been orphaned. The CCF's been going from strength to strength ever since, and her work has earned her literally countless awards from across the globe. It's also made an incredible difference to the fate of cheetahs living in the wild. Dr. Laurie, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Well, I'm glad to be there with you today. <laughs> thank you. So you're originally from the US. How did you discover your passion for cheetahs? Well, I really never knew anything about cheetahs until I was about 19. And I started working at a wildlife park in Oregon, the mm. Wildlife Safari. Mm. And at that point in time, in the early 70s, that was the, one of the few places in the world that actually had cheetahs. And I was fascinated by them. I thought they were the most beautiful animal I'd ever seen. And I wanted to know more about them. And everybody I asked about them said, we don't know anything about them. And so that really got my curiosity going. Um, I was in charge of our veterinary clinic and all the special animals at the wildlife safari. Mm. And so the cheetahs came under my care. And I learned and watched them and studied them and wrote to people around the world trying to find out everything that I could about cheetahs. Mm. So that's really what got me started. Um, and that's been a long, long time ago. <laughs> and I'm still fascinated by them. Your early research in the U.S. was actually with captive cheetahs. What specifically were you studying about them? Well, yes, we again, we were one of the few places in the world that had cheetahs in captivity. And back in the early 70s, not very many animals were in captivity. What had been said to me as I wrote to people around the world, mm. back in those days, you know, you put a stamp on a letter and you <laughs> sent it around the world. And you have to wait for a letter to come back. We didn't have things like um, email back then. But as the letters came back, people would always say, you know, we don't know anything about cheetahs. Although they've been around with people for over 5,000 years, they've never been an animal that's bred well in captivity. Mm. They have a very short lifespan in captivity. And, you know, we're losing them in the wild. And if you learn something about cheetahs, please let us know. Mm. So my early research really revolved around trying to understand you know, how to develop a good captive breeding program. With that, um, uh, for the 16 years that I was at the Wildlife Safari, I developed the most successful captive breeding program throughout all of North America and the third most successful in the world. And much of our success really revolved around having large open spaces. Our animals were off exhibit. And um, cheetahs had made choice. And so we had enough cheetahs 
that they were have, able to have a selection mm. of who to breed to. And that was a lot of the early research leading me into working with collaborators from the Smithsonian and our U.S. National Cancer Institute. We discovered, actually, the lack of cheetah's genetic diversity, understanding that they would found that they had very poor um, abnormal sperm, and from that, looking at their, their blood, uh, looking back in those days at electrophoretic pharises, we were able to discover this lack of genetic diversity. So that was really our early research. Mm. Um, nobody knew anything about cheetahs. We, we knew that we had captive animals. We had never studied an animal in the wild and had any data on that. Mm. So in the early 70s, actually, I ended up in Namibia doing my first research project on cheetahs. Mm. And that led us even further into trying to understand more about cheetahs. So that was kind of the beginning. And then breeding cheetahs, I developed the International Cheetah Stud Book, which brought a, a registry of all the cheetahs around the world and then helped develop what's called the Species Survival Plan mm. for North America and then helped develop that type of a breeding program in Europe and in, even in Australia. So it's a long time, but that it all had a beginning a mm. long, long time ago. Mm. For your first trip to Namibia, you actually took along a cheetah called Kayam. You took her there to see whether or not you could teach her how to hunt. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Well, Kayam was a very special cheetah, and it was a first-of-its-kind research that I was involved in, so it was very exciting. My job was to find out if a captive-born cheetah could learn how to hunt, um, hence possibly go back into the wild, and what steps were those. And so it was very interesting, as I had raised Kayam from a young cub. She had been born at the Wildlife Safari, and I raised her... Her, uh, from the time she was about a month old, and we were together her entire 10 years of her life. Wow. But when she was uh, a little over a year old, we brought her to Namibia, Southwest Africa, in 77, 1977. And at that point, it was interesting because her parents had come from Namibia. Hmm. So it was, you know, taking her back kind of to her room. Hmm. Um, but my job was to find out, you know, well, what steps were involved. So we sat at water holes and we, over a few months, actually, she learned how to hunt. I learned how to be a good mother to mm. a cheetah. But what I also learned more was about the problems facing the cheetah in the wild. Farmers were killing them like flies. They were killing hundreds of them each year. Mm. And they knew nothing about the cheetah. They just knew that the cheetah was a predator and predators were supposed to be killed. And that's what led me more into trying to find out, you know, how do we save them in the wild? Here's the problem. We need a solution. Mm. And so, so Kayam did learn how to hunt, but she came back to um, Oregon, where the wildlife safari was. And for the next 10 years of her life, we were, um, she was used as an educational ambassador, where I would tell the cheetah story and traveled around the United States where we tried to bring awareness to the fact that the wild cheetah really needed help. Uh, my relationship with her was, I mean, I guess she was my first my first child, I guess I would say. Raising her from a month old and what we did together 
and traveled in Africa and traveled around the United States. We were very close. She never really left my side. So I had a big responsibility to her, and she I seemed to be her, her voice. I always say that she led me on a voyage, I guess, into the cheetah world, and what I saw I needed to tell the world about. So Kayana was very special. I had been able to honor her in a few different ways. I think one of the most important ways internationally is there is International Cheetah Day, and that is on the 4th of December. Mm-hmm. And everywhere in the world on the 4th of December, people who care about cheetahs celebrate International Cheetah Day. And this was her birthday. Aww. And I felt that that was a nice way of actually celebrating her as a very, very, very special cheetah. Mm. And if it had not been for, I think, my raising her and her bringing me to Namibia, I never would have realized what a problem there was for the cheetah. Mm. And with that, I you know, believe that she's actually the founder of cheetah conservation. Mm. Another cheetah you became very close to was one called Chewbacca. How did you first meet him? Well, Chewbacca came in um, to my life around 1995. So I had already moved here to Namibia. I moved to Namibia at Namibia's Independence in 1990 and set up the Cheetah Conservation Fund, which is our foundation. And a few years along through my research that I was doing here, and I was really trying to find out why farmers were killing Cheetah. Was it a perceived threat? that they were there, or was it an actual threat? Which mm. she is actually killing their livestock. Mm. And what I found out is it was more of a perceived threat. But with that, farmers were still catching cheetahs. And I would ask the farmers that if they caught one, if I could collect, you know, anesthetize it, collect blood on it, put a radio collar on it, mm. find out more about how the cheetah was living here. And around 1995, a little cub ended up being orphaned. And a farmer called and actually had caught the cheetah. They catch cheetahs in cage traps. And they had not only caught that one, they caught the cub. And this cub survived. And they had brought it into the house and were trying to bottle raise it. Oftentimes people think, you know, a baby's supposed to have milk. And they give it cow milk, which for a cheetah, it actually makes them very, very sick. So Chewbacca came to me as a almost dying orphan cub at 10 days of age and his mother came along as well except his mother could not take care of him because he was dying I was able to put a collar on her and release her back out into the wild where for the next month it was touch and go trying to keep little Chewbacca alive Mm. he did survive and he lived with me as an ambassador for the next 16 years he had a very very long life and I have to say, was the next most special cheetah in the entire world. Here in Namibia, he became a legend, a important cheetah. School kids would come and they would see him run. We always run our cheetahs using a mechanical lure and exercise them. He would walk out into the bush to play trees. Farmers would meet him. So he was just an amazing, amazing cheetah. Again, helping share with the the people of the world, Mm. how special this species is. Now, we know cheetahs are fast and can purr like domestic cats, but what other kinds of behaviors are they known for? 
Well, they are the largest or the smallest of the big cats, mm. um, and they're the only big cat that does purr, but they also have other interesting vocalizations. They chirp, and they have a guttural call. Um, a bubbling call, uh, they growl, hiss, spat. But their chirping is actually very interesting because it can be heard quite a distance away. Mothers will chirp to their cubs, their brothers will chirp to each other. Males seem to live together in what are called coalitions, mm. and they stick together their entire lives, and that allows them to hold better territories. And female cheetahs are interesting because they have a mate choice. They will cover multiple males' home ranges, their home range, and they will select the male that they will want to breed to, and they breed about every two and a half years. The cubs stick with their moms until they're about about 18 months to two years of age. And then they will stick with each other until dominant males come to the females, breed the females, chase the young brothers away, and then the brothers go off and have to find their own territory. So behavior of cheetahs was not really well understood. And so much of the years of research since I set up the Cheetah Conservation Fund here in Namibia back in 1990 really revolved around having radio collars on cats, understanding how they were living. They've got huge home ranges, home ranges that are, for males, about 800 square miles. Oh, um, wow. Or that would be 1,600 square kilometers. Their ranges are just huge. And how they hunt, you know, the hunting will occur as often as possible. Mm. But they eat rapidly, and that's one of the big problems for them. And why they're on ranches, ranch farmlands, is that they're not really found in protected areas, primarily because lions and hyenas steal their kill and oftentimes will kill their young and push them out of these protected areas mm. because they're kind of the kings of the protected areas. And the cheetah is more vulnerable. It is not um, aggressive. It's not big, powerful. They have only speed. And so everything else on their body is actually thinned out from having small canine teeth to semi-non-retractable claws. So their claws are more like cleats that help for traction and running. They're, they don't come into their sheath and they're not sharp. So everything about the cheetah is actually built for speed. Uh, and with that, they are one of the best hunters of all of the savanna lands of Africa, mm. but they are feeding the rest of the ecosystem. So jackals will take their kill from them. They feed the vultures and all the other small carnivorous animals. So they're a very important part of the system in keeping, you know, these ecosystems healthy. So understanding the cheetah has been a fascinating part of my, my life mm. and helping share that with the farming community so that they can learn to live with the cheetah and understand that the cheetah is a very special animal that is living on their land with them. So right now at the CCF, you have a few cheetahs in your care, and one of them is a girl called Solo. Can you tell us a little bit about her and how she's going? 
Well, Solo is actually a very old cat. She is one of our, she is our very oldest cat. She's 18 years old mm. right now. She does usually have had very short lifespans. And again, over the years that we've been working with cheetahs, understanding them in the wild and sharing back to our colleagues in zoos around the world, helping them learn more about how to take care of their captive cheetahs, we've learned a lot about lengthening that age in captivity. The average lifespan for a cheetah in captivity is still about 12 or 13. Most of our cats here, because we're in a semi-natural environment where our orphan cats or our non-releasable cheetahs live, we do have 34 non-releasable cheetahs that are at our center that we take care of every day, and they're all out. I should say in Namibia we have law that it's one hectare per cheetah. So these cheetahs live in very, very, very large areas, and not all together. We have to put them in different family groups. Solo, as her name implies, came in as a solo animal on her own. I think she was also named after a bit of the Han Solo Star Wars. Um, we have had, like, Chewbacca. Um, several cheetahs that have followed this Star Wars-type theme. But she has, she's just always been sort of a loner. She's a beautiful cat has big, beautiful eyes. And just being so old, we are now, you know, she's in the, we call it the old age home. When they get very old, we take them from their very, very large camps into smaller areas that they can get around in a little bit more. Today, at her age, she doesn't see all that well. She's got cataracts, and she's just recently had to have eye surgery on one of her beautiful eyes and she doesn't hear that well anymore so just holding on to these animals she came in as an orphan as all of our cheetahs here do whether a farmer has you know killed their mother or has found the cubs someplace in the bush which you know we want them to be living in the wild and not coming into captivity mm. but when they come in as young aged cats and they don't know how to hunt, it's very difficult. They can't really go back out into mm. the wild. She came in too young to be able to be released back out in the wild. However, now, again, we try to put every cheetah back that we can. We've worked on nearly a 1,000 cheetahs in 28 years, but of that, over 600 of them have been able to go back out into the wild. And of those... We, that we have as orphans, like the 34 cheetahs that we have here now, some of them come in when they are, let us say, eight, nine, ten months of age and have lived with their mom, but they're not old enough to go back out in the wild on their own if something's happened to their mother. And so we have had success in what we call our rewilding program or our rehabilitation, where some of these cats, which we, you can, select what their behaviors are like, we are able to actually put some of these cats back out into the wild that have to be taken care of as orphans here at CCF. But Solo was not one of those. So she's been on our care for 18 years. Amazing. What are their biggest threats in the wild? Well, the biggest problem for them is loss of habitat. As our human population can, can, continues to grow, and again, they're not found in our 
protected areas. Most of the protected areas are not large enough. So we do know that places like the Serengeti, the Masai Mara, areas like Kruger National Park, there are about 10 reserves throughout Africa that are large enough to maintain viable populations. But the majority of the animals are found outside of these protected areas on land where people are, people and their livestock. And throughout most of their ranges, the people are um, very poor and their livestock and their populations on the land are continually growing. And then there's human-wildlife conflict. So there's conflict with the cheetahs looking at livestock if there's no wildlife. And then the cheetah will catch the livestock and then the farmers will kill the cheetahs. Mm. So that has fragmented their habitat where the animals can no longer go from, you know, one area to another area because now they're full of people in there and their livestock. And with that, in often in many of the areas throughout many of these different countries, due to areas and aspects around poverty and human population growth, there's no wildlife. Mm-hmm. And so there's no natural prey for the cheetahs to hunt. Where in Namibia, and why I selected Namibia to set up the Cheetah Conservation Fund, was that it was still a less populated for people area, the cheetahs are living on livestock ranch land mm-hmm. or farmland where there is livestock. However, there's a lot of wildlife here in Namibia. In particular, about 80% of our wildlife is found outside of the protected areas on these farmlands where the cheetahs are found. So from that, they need to have prey. And if there is no prey, then that becomes a real problem for the livestock because then the cheetah has to have something to eat. Another problem facing them as well does affect them as their numbers get lower and there's less than 7,500 cheetahs left in the world today. Mm. They are found in about 20 countries in about 30 populations. However, about two-thirds of those populations are less than 100 individuals. That means that they are kind of inbreeding and that breeding to near extinction. So because they are also an animal that lacks genetic diversity, as their numbers become smaller, that becomes even a greater threat to them, either through their you know ecological changes, climate changes, uh, habitat change, as well as that of you know potential of disease risk. Because as their numbers become smaller, there are greater problems and threats to them. Um, with with disease as well. Mm. Now, we've all seen the recent footage of wild cheetahs jumping onto safari vehicles. And in fact, I think there was even one bit of footage where one of the cheetahs actually jumped inside one of the vehicles. It was in the Masai Mara. Are humans meant to be afraid of cheetahs or is, is this a behaviour that's just being misunderstood? Well, cheetahs are not an aggressive animal. So they would believe more in flight versus fight. So... Jumping up, yes, on the top of the safari vehicle is probably because they can yes see further. It is a a population. I, I, I believe you have even met one of those cheetahs yeah. out in the wild. Maybe the mother or grandmother. Yeah. Um, like a, and unfortunately, it was encouraged that she come to the tourist vehicle and jump on it. So mm. not that they maybe are dangerous, but they are a wild animal. And so... 
people are more dangerous because the people who are there have no concept about the cheetah's behavior. And the other thing is, is that we really are trying not to encourage tourism vehicles to be as close to these cheetahs, although they're habituated. We don't really want the cheetahs to be coming over and jumping on their cars. I believe that oftentimes maybe tips are paid to the people or the tour guides. It is really not what is recommended mm. uh, when people are off on safari to be seen wild animals like this. So it's not necessarily the cheetah's going to eat them. And I believe that the tour guide or the driver should not be allowing that kind of behavior mm. for these animals. Agree. Thanks to the work of the CCF, the number of cheetahs in Namibia has actually doubled, which is just incredible. How have you guys made this happen? Well, again, our numbers were so low when I got here in 1990 because the farmers had been killing hundreds of them. And as a matter of fact, in the 1980s, as I was telling the world that something had to happen to help wild cheetahs, our farming community here in Namibia had killed about 10,000 cheetahs um, and removed them from the wild. But they didn't know anything about the cheetah. So working with the farming community, and when I first got here, again, I'd been here before many times between the when I came with Kayam in the 70s and then when I decided to move here permanently at Namibia's independence in 1990 and set up our foundation, And what I wanted to do is to find out more from the farmers, how they were farming, what they knew about the cheetah, and how we could share information about the cheetah with the farming community. So I went door to door and I did surveys and I learned a lot about the farming systems here. And I always think that systems are important, understanding where the livestock is, where the wildlife is, where water points are what the problems were facing the farmer with the predator, the cheetah, and leopards are in this area as well. Mm. Were they protecting their livestock? Was there, you know, did they have, you know, calving corrals and calving seasons? Did With your small stock, your goats and sheep, was there a herder with them or a livestock guarding dog? And I found out that there wasn't a lot of livestock management. Mm. And much of the work that we have done has actually been working with the farming community to help share with them how they, in their management, plays a role in in problems that they may have with both the cheetah and leopards and even jackals. That if they manage their livestock appropriately and kept an eye on their small stock and their calving seasons and their young calves, that they would reduce their losses and therefore would not have to be aggressive and killing all of the predators. One of the things that we did also is we started up a livestock guarding dog program where we use a large breed of dog called the Kangal or Anatolian Shepherd, which is a Turkish breed of dog which has been used for about 5,000 years in Turkey to protect livestock from Mm. wolves. And so this large dog uh, we brought in about 25 years ago and started a breeding program. And then we work with the farmers by giving the dogs to the farmer when they're puppies. The puppies grow up with their flock, goats or sheep, and they protect the livestock by barking loudly, marking territory, going out with the herd, 
predators stay away. They don't want to get hurt. And we have plenty of wildlife here, and that allows the herds to be safe from the dogs taking care of them. And then the cheetah avoids those areas. So it's been a huge success by working again with farmers, showing them that livestock management, that they can live with a cheetah, they can live with leopards, and that predators are not just wanting livestock catching animals. They don't want to just be out there eating your livestock. We are oftentimes providing a cheap, easy meal for them by not managing our livestock appropriately. Mm. So we call much of the work that we do working with farmers, future farmers of Africa, by training them about good livestock management, health care of their animals, rangeland management, the amount of grasses you need, as well as that of wildlife management, for Mm -hmm. them to see that here in Namibia we have what are called integrated systems, conservancies, where wildlife and livestock can live on the same land together. And through good management of your livestock and good management of your grazing land, wildlife has come back in very high numbers here in Namibia, to such an extent that I would say that Namibia is probably one of the few countries in the world that can continually talk about an increased wildlife population. Mm. And so with that, when you've got wildlife, you will have predators. But if you can manage your livestock, everyone can live together Mm. in harmony, which is what our philosophy is, is that we can live together. Now, you've spent decades working with cheetahs and have no doubt come up against some, some big challenges. Are you able to actually pinpoint exactly what it is that keeps you going? Well, I think every day when I see cheetahs, the passion that I have continued. Mm. I know that we are the lifeline to their survival, and our organization has to continue to grow. We are have grown in uh, since we started in 1990 to a world-renowned organization. Um, Our center here in Namibia is a huge reserve. We have about 100,000 acres, which is free-range wildlife. We are also a model farm, so we practice what we preach. We practice about livestock ranching, and we teach ranchers on our farm. We are a research and education center, so here we do have, you know, full registered veterinarian clinic. We have a genetics laboratory. We breed livestock guarding dogs. We've been able to breed and place over 600 of our dogs in nearly 30 years. And with that, growing what we do, we work with our communities in a habitat restoration project where we're looking at maintaining and helping the habitat so that there'll be more grasses and more wildlife, hence more cheetahs. And from that, we we actually put a lot of local people to work. From our training program, we brought in thousands of rural farmers to help train them in farm management. And then we've worked throughout the cheetahs' range by bringing people in from NGOs and the government to help them learn about how we have developed our cheetah programs and research here What keeps me going mostly again is just, again, knowing that we are their lifeline and that we need to do more. And if we can scale up our programs and help in not only Namibia, but in the other range countries, we can help 
more cheetah populations survive, and mm. and we need help from everybody mm. everywhere in the world. Well, Dr. Laurie, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your stories with us. Well, great. I do hope you know that from an Australian standpoint, we do have a registered uh, non-profit organization there called Cheetah Conservation Australia, and would love everyone to go to our website, which is cheetah.org, and learn more about all of our different programs, not only here in Namibia, but uh, in, in Australia, in, throughout the world, and try to get people involved. Mm. We really want people to become involved in the work that we're doing. We do have volunteers that come here to Namibia and work with us, so we welcome volunteers. We also have university students that come to do practical, undergraduate, graduate. So we welcome that kind of international collaboration on all levels. Amazing. I'll put all the information up on our website as well. So everybody who's listening now can go there and be bounced from my website to yours. It would be great to get amongst it. Great. Well, I look forward to talking with you again. And thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Now, for more information about those awesome programs that Dr. Laurie was just talking about, head to fornographic.com where I've got all the information that you could ever possibly need. Catch you next time. Wild Lives by Phonographic. Follow us on omni.fm or search for Wild Lives by Phonographic on iTunes. Subscribe today and you'll never miss an episode.